Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There is substantial evidence to show that the president was frustrated and angered by his sincere belief that the investigation was undermining his presidency, propelled by his political opponents, and fueled by illegal leaks. Welcome to a special edition of Stay Tuned. That, of course, is Attorney General William Barr at this morning's press conference about the Mueller report, which is, of course, somewhat redacted, finally out. Joining me for today's special edition of Stay Tuned is Ann Milgram. She is, as you know, the former Attorney General of New Jersey and my co-host at the Cafe Insider podcast. There is a lot to discuss. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. One of the most important things we can do every day, aside from listening to this podcast, is brush our teeth. But how many of us do it properly? Hold the brush at a 45-degree angle and scrub clockwise for two full minutes. Enter Quip, the better electric toothbrush, created by dentists and designers. It makes brushing more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. It has a built-in two-minute timer and pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides the best way to get a full and even clean. Maybe you have sensitive teeth. Quip is for you, too. With sensitive sonic vibrations, Quip is gentle on your gums. Plus, Quip can send you refills every three months to keep your breath and your mouth fresh. That's why I love my Quip. No wonder they're one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. And they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash preet right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash preet. Hiring can be tricky. Like if you decide to purge your entire office for some reason, then you might be in the market for a whole slew of qualified candidates. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes 
to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-R-E-E-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hi, Anne. How are you? Hi, Preet. How you doing? I'm good. So I'm in a, in a small podcast studio in Washington, D.C. at CNN headquarters. I don't know if it's the headquarters, actually, but it's the, it's the D.C. office of CNN. And you are where? I am sitting in our normal podcasting studio in New York City. I see. Looking so at an Mueller empty report. chair across from me. Ah, uh, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's sad. The, yep. the famous debating of the empty chair. Yeah. So I've been spending all the day, um, as much as I can, scrambling and reading. I've gotten through a great majority of it, skimmed other parts of it, seen what some other folks have said about it, still scrambling a little bit to to get my head around all of it. Uh, You've had a chance to look at the report too, Anne? Yeah, I'm in in the same boat. I mean, I've I've had the opportunity to read pretty thoroughly the obstruction section and a lot of the conspiracy section, but it's there's a lot here and I definitely want to read it again. And so I think we should well, talk, we have more about to talk about it today. About, yes. Yeah. And, and we'll continue to be talking about it. I think there's enough here that, that it will require dissection and conversation for a number of days going forward. Did you have a, did you have a big takeaway from just the overall report? Did it um, match what you expected it to be? I'll tell you, I, I have sort of two takeaways um, or, or two high level takeaways and There are probably a lot more takeaways. But the first is I think Mueller did an extraordinary job. And and there are a couple places where I may disagree with him or or sort of push a little bit against some of the way or the conclusions he drew. But this is a very detailed, very fact-based report. They looked at questions from every possible angle. Uh, And so I really came away thinking he was thorough, he was factual, and that – he went out of his way to make sure that he was fair in how he gathered the facts and did the analysis. And so that's one of my big takeaways. My second big takeaway is that I think that the obstruction section is devastating for the president. And that is consistent with some of the public reporting we've heard lately, but I think not consistent with the summary that Barr gave us, um, you know, the attorney general Barr gave us, you know, three or four weeks ago. And I do think you and I should dissect it a little, but it is there are multiple instances of conduct and there is deeper conduct. And just the the way that they do the analysis of the sort of three parts of the statute, I thought was very powerful. What about you? What's your what's your big takeaway? Yeah, so I thought, uh, as expected, that the report would be incredibly detailed, thoughtful, um, pretty fair, not a lot of editorializing. And on every question, they sort of took the time to say, well, on the one hand, this is one way you could look at it. On the other hand, um, you know, the, the better view of the evidence suggests that this is the other way to look at it, but you know, always gave some consideration to both sides of the question. So it's hard to say that they went out of their way to, to find bad conduct or went out of their way to excuse bad conduct. But you know, I also found, with respect to the obstruction section, that it was devastating. And it paints a picture of basically crazy, lunatic White House, where person after person after person was asked to do crazy things. Sometimes they did those crazy things. Sometimes they didn't do those crazy things. And 
you know, since we both spend time following the media and people who listen to us listen to the media on this question of whether or not the media got things right, lots and lots of stuff in the report, both with respect to part one on conspiracy and part two on obstruction, makes clear that a lot of these things that were reported about Don McGahn's conversations or Donald Trump Jr.'s conduct, you know, whether or not it rose to the level of there being a provable criminal offense, the facts largely have borne out true. And it's kind of, you know, interesting when, when you read a newspaper article about Donald Trump saying, you know, can you go, you know, fire the special counsel or you see a newspaper article or, or, a, or a TV story about how Donald Trump was really mad at Jeff Sessions. It's very different when you read about them in a newspaper article and then you see them ratified and endorsed and stated basically as fact in a report from Bob Mueller's team. Well, we should dissect that just for one second, because one of the things that Mueller did, and I noted as I was reading it a few different places, is that he looked at situations in which there had been public reporting, you know, take take the, the sort of questions surrounding Michael Flynn and the firing of Jim Comey. And we had read a lot of those pieces in public reporting. But what Mueller does is he makes a credibility determination. And so he goes through and says there are two people in the room at the time when um, Trump clears the President Trump clears the Oval Office, asks then FBI Director Jim Comey to come in. It's the day after Chris Christie has said the investigation's not going to go away, even though you fired Michael Flynn. And Jim Comey, we know, has stated the president said to me, you know, I hope you can see your way way past this. He, Flynn's a good guy, things things like that. And then you have Mueller essentially making a finding that he credits Jim Comey in that. And, and that's just one example. And I use it because I think most of us are familiar with those facts. But what's really pretty compelling is that he addresses, you know, Comey made contemporaneous notes um, other witnesses confirmed that the room was cleared. I mean, he really does it in a methodical way. And that's something that I think when we read public reporting, it was out there, but it wasn't confirmed. And so what Mueller does in a number of these instances is basically say, here's what happened. And he is making factual calls. And that's really valuable for those of us who've been watching this and wanting to understand what happened. Yeah, look, over and over and over again, the Mueller report based on common sense, documentary evidence, interviews with witnesses, essentially credit when there's a difference of opinion and a difference in interpretation of an event and one side is Trump's and the other side is someone else's, it almost always credits the other side. Yes. Which (laughs) tells you something about the credibility of the president and what uh, Bob Mueller and his team thought of the credibility of the president. Okay. So let's, so we've already, you know, because it's, it's inevitable. We've, we've, we've doved, we've dived, we've dove in. (laughs) We dove in. We've, we've already dove in to the obstruction thing. But before we get to the specific examples like you were talking about, you know, there's been this continuing debate about why on earth Bob Mueller didn't make a determination about obstruction. He said, you know, while it does not, uh, we don't say that that a crime has been committed. We also don't say that Donald Trump has been exonerated. And as, you know, I have been speculating for the last several weeks uh, and I'm, I'm curious to see if, if you have a, a view a view or, or a disagreement with my new conclusion. But I've been speculating for a number of weeks that, you know, part of the reason that may be so is that Bob Mueller and his team thought that the case was so close, that the facts were so close, that the question was so close, that they couldn't really make a determination on whether it was appropriate to say a crime had been committed. And Bill Barr, 
you know, made it seem like that was so. And then you read the Mueller report and the preface to Section 2 that's about obstruction to me is kind of extraordinary because it says in a way that I found much more jarring than I expected that very clearly uh, the special counsel's office decided they weren't going to make the decision or make the call on obstruction, not necessarily because it was so close or so fraught, but specifically because they adopted and accepted the legal conclusion of the Office of Legal Counsel that says you cannot indict or prosecute a sitting president. But then they say something else that I think is very notable and I don't think is getting enough attention. And this is I'm quoting from the report. While the OLC opinion concludes that a sitting president may not be prosecuted, it recognizes that a criminal investigation during the president's term is permissible. It's notable, which is why they were able to do their investigation. And then more importantly, they say the OLC opinion also recognizes that a president does not have immunity after he leaves office. And then they say, and this is a big deal, I think, given those considerations, the facts known to us, and the strong public interest in safeguarding the integrity of the criminal justice system, we conducted a thorough and factual investigation in order to preserve the evidence when memories were fresh and documentary materials were available. So I guess my question to you is, were you surprised by that, number one? Number two, does that sound like it was a punt to Congress? And three, was it also maybe a double punt to future prosecutors for a time when Donald Trump is no longer in office? So these two pages of the report are worth spending a lot of time on, and it's the introduction to volume two, which basically lays out sort of four conclusions that the Mueller team came to when they were looking at the obstruction of justice question. Um, And you, you just essentially articulated number two, which was about the office of legal counsel opinion that it, it doesn't permit um, charging a sitting president, prosecuting a sitting president, but it does allow a criminal investigation during the president's term. Um, And I would just say to your question, they do specifically raise that charges can be brought after the conclusion of a term. And so I think they're basically saying we've we've compiled the evidence, we've done the underlying factual criminal investigation, and we don't have the authority, and we'll talk about the rest of this, but we don't have the authority to prosecute the president. And so because we don't have that authority, we made the decision that we shouldn't um, make that judgment of whether or not he should be prosecuted. But... Um, Another after the president is no longer in office, he could be prosecuted. And there's there, there's sort of a footnote in my mind, which is pending a statute of limitations, which is five years. And so th- there's a timing question there, but also to the United States Congress to have this evidence. So that's number just to, to sort of go high but, level. But just, a, just a pause on that for a second. So do you agree that Bob Mueller in no way, shape or form, given his view that it was it's inappropriate against the backdrop of the OLC opinion, given his view that one should not make a determination of criminality, that he clearly was not punting to Bill Barr, because Bill Barr, as the attorney general, also within the Justice Department, obviously, is in the same position as Bob Mueller. Yes. And if it was inappropriate for Bob Mueller to make a determination about criminality, then it was certainly inappropriate, in his view at least, for Bill Barr to make such a determination. And so this question of whether or not he was like leaving it to Bill Barr, I think is very squarely answered by that analysis, no? There's no question that he was not leaving this to Bill Barr to make the decision. I, I agree with you completely. And and just to, to sort of further support that, when he gives these four reasons of why they didn't make a call, number one is, you know, traditional prosecution is a binary decision. You charge or you don't charge. Number two, there's an office of legal 
legal counsel opinion saying you can't prosecute a sitting president. Number three, and this is where I think it gets even more interesting, is Mueller really says it's unfair for us to make a call as to whether or not we would prosecute when we cannot charge the president. Because when you charge someone, they get their day in court. They get to put the evidence to the test. They can be found guilty or exonerated. And on page two of volume two, Mueller writes, fairness concerns counseled against potentially reaching that judgment, the judgment whether or not, um, this is me parenthetically saying, the judgment whether or not to charge to charge the president. So fairness concerns counseled against potentially reaching that judgment when no charges can be brought. And he goes on to talk about the ordinary means for an individual to respond to an accusation is through a speedy and public trial with all the procedural protections that surround a criminal case. And so what Mueller is saying, I think, is, you know, if I made that conclusion, I'm essentially acting like the judge and jury. I'm, I'm judging his guilt or innocence publicly and in a way that would be be unfair to him. And so I'm not going to do it. And you're exactly right that Bill Barr just stepped in and took that province of the judge and jury by making a final conclusion on the facts when Mueller said specifically, you know, I'm not going to actually make those conclusions. And Barr is not the fact finder here. Congress is the fact finder. And ultimately, as you point out, or, maybe, or Congress could be a fact finder. They could be. And also, and also a future prosecutor. But what exactly. also makes this, you know, kind of unseemly to me, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on Bill Barr. We should talk about the report. But, you know, we, we did open the day with a Bill Barr uh, press conference. And it just seems to me that some of the things that Bill Barr said in the letter don't square with the report. And on the thing we're talking about right now, the point we're making at this moment, my recollection from this morning, although it seems about 150 hours ago, when asked the question about whether Bob Mueller thought it was okay for for Bill Barr to make the call on, on obstruction that he did, I think Bill Barr said – I don't have the transcript in front of me. I think Bill Barr said – um, I understand from from Bob Mueller. I don't think he said he spoke to him directly. That that was the prerogative of the attorney general. Um, that does not seem to me at all consistent with what uh, Bob Mueller thought about this question, and what anyone in the Justice Department should be saying on the question against the backdrop of this OLC opinion. And and Barr also said that Mueller told him that the OLC opinion on not indicting a sitting president wasn't a factor, and that that could not be less less true. It's the first two pages of the obstruction section of the report. And Mueller broke the report into two sections, one on obstruction and one on this question of conspiracy with the Russians um, who were hacking into the election and influencing uh, the election through social media. And so on the obstruction part of the report, the first two pages are what we've just gone through, which is a complete explanation by Mueller of why he's not making a conclusion. Now, here's my question to you, Preet. So you read the first two pages and it basically says, I, I want to be completely fair. I don't think it's fair. And by the way, I worry that this might it might leak if I did come to a conclusion. And so in the interest of fairness, I don't want to do that. But then you read the individual sections, some of which we'll probably talk about in a minute. And Mueller does a very thorough legal analysis. And, and what he does is exactly what you expect to see in a prosecution memo, which is he lays out the facts. He lays out the applicable law and he talks about the obstruction statutes. And then he explains in the obstruction statutes, there are generally three elements. Number one, obstructive co- conduct, um, the actions taken. Number two, nexus to a pending or potential grand jury proceeding. And number three, corrupt intent. And then he goes through 
each of those elements of the crimes of obstruction. And he talks about what facts exist under each of them and whether or not evidence exists, essentially, of those three things. So in some ways, does he actually do that? He doesn't say it's obstruction, but he does a very thorough analysis. Yeah, but you know what's interesting is, which is why you can view it as a more of a roadmap than, than anything else, is he sets forth the facts relating to many, many different incidents. And in some of them, you know, the, the, the laying out of the evidence is a little weaker. It's not as strong. So, for example, you know, um, not to get ahead of ourselves, but just, you know, anecdotally, the special counsel's office says with respect to the issue of whether or not the president asked Michael Cohen to lie to Congress, they don't really think that that's a very powerful argument based on the evidence that they saw right. uh, and the witness interviews that they did. But then on other occasions, it seems very powerful, like when the president seems to have told Corey Lewandowski to take action to rein in the Mueller investigation. Right. Uh, but, it, but he doesn't say, even though the, you can tell if you read it all, that some of the factual narratives and legal analyses are stronger than the other, they don't really sort of rank them. So let me ask you this question then. You know, going back to something I said at the beginning, I had expected the recitation of facts and law to be very close. And now that I've read it, and now that I know the reason why Bob Mueller decided not to make the call, whether you agree with that decision or not, but now that I know it, I read the obstruction section overall, and you can dispute you know, some of the particular incidents as being strong or not strong evidence, but overall as pretty strong in favor of charging obstruction if the president were not the sitting president of the United States. I expected to see many, many more pages of defenses and acceptance of some defense arguments. And largely, I thought that the Mueller team was dismissive of the constitutional, statutory, and other legal arguments made by uh, Trump's lawyers, some of which they submitted directly to the special counsel, and a lot of which we've seen on TV that either Alan Dershowitz or, uh, who's not the president's lawyer, but he's made these arguments that simply because the president has the constitutional authority to do facially lawful things, like fire an FBI director or, or anything else, that that meant he couldn't obstruct. And you know, by facially, that means just without knowing any other facts or any other evidence just by itself, it might be ostensibly lawful. They're very dismissive of those arguments. How do you weigh – so when you read it, do you think, it's, you think it's close and they thought it was close or not? So I'd say two things. First, I, you, you made a great point about – the arguments that that people like Bill Barr have made about the president's authority under the Constitution and that if he's engaged in constitutional acts, um, that essentially that's protected. And M- Mueller's team does a does an incredible job of, of rejecting those arguments and really articulating why they don't hold water. And, and there's a great line in there talking about, you know, otherwise the president would be above the law. And I would just read to you from page eight of the of volume two on obstruction, which is just before the conclusion, when Mueller is addressing these arguments about the question of whether the president can be found to have obstructed justice by exercising his powers under Article two of the Constitution. Mueller writes, we concluded that Congress has authority to prohibit a president's corrupt use of his authority in order to protect the integrity of the administration of justice. And he goes on towards the end of it to say the conclusion that Congress may apply the obstruction laws to the president's corrupt exercise of the powers of office accords with our constitutional system of checks and balances and the principle that no person is above the law. Yeah. I mean, that's a very powerful statement. 
and shows what they think overall about the legal arguments. There's another extraordinary sentence from the report um, that is getting some attention, I think rightfully so, that shows what the special counsel's office thought about some of the, the factual uh, issues in the case, and that's where the, the, the special counsel report says the president's efforts to influence the investigation were mostly unsuccessful, but that is largely because the persons who surrounded the president declined to carry out orders or accede to his request. And that's kind of extraordinary because in, in case after case after case throughout the obstruction section of the Mueller report, you have Donald Trump raging, getting annoyed, getting angry, and, and firing off a command at someone, telling them to do something fire someone, make a statement, rein in an investigation, and time and again, these people, some of whom, by the way, have not in other instances so you know, fully distinguished themselves as people of integrity, but they stood up to the president on these. You know, that goes for uh, Don McGahn. It goes for Corey Lewandowski. It goes for a White House official named Rick Dearborn. It goes for Jeff Sessions on whether or not he would unrecuse himself. KT McFarland. Uh, McFarland. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, not, it's not actually something that you that allows you to clothe yourself with honor that one of the reasons and that obstruction should, didn't occur is that other people didn't accede to your requests but we should be clear on that that an attempt you know under the statute that Mueller seems to focus on I mean he looks at all the obstruction statutes but he focuses a lot on 1512 subsection C2 which is more of the catch-all which also includes attempt and so the bottom line is you know if you attempt to obstruct justice even if you're not successful in getting somebody to write the false email or in getting somebody to you know fire the sitting attorney general it doesn't mean that you didn't engage in, engage in obstruction and just to, to that one point Preet, I would say that your question about overall the, this question of and I, I did a CNN show this morning where one of the correspondents said you know obstruction is a jump ball meaning you know there's evidence on both sides and it, you can't call it one way or another. I could not agree with you more. That's not the case. What I see here is a case that supports and evidence that supports a prosecution of the president. If you could, if you could charge a sitting president, I think that this lays out a very powerful set of facts and and law and and sort of evidence where you could walk into a grand jury and present a case on obstruction of justice against the president. Now, we could talk about which which counts would be stronger than others, what would you bring, what would you not bring, but any suggestion that there is insufficient evidence that the president obstructed justice, that's not what you find in this report. This is not a report that says you know, the president is is not guilty and the report specifically says it doesn't exonerate him. But beyond that, I think they really do make a case um, for ways in which the president worked actively to um, thwart the investigation, fire the special counsel, fire Comey and others. And it's it's it really is devastating to the president. And I think important as part of this larger conversation about what's taken place over the last two years that we not that we not ignore that. Yeah, no, I think absolutely that's true. I mean, you have you have sort of you know, it's sort of amazing sound bites that come out of the report, including Don McGahn, then White House Counsel, saying, you know, I'm not going to be uh, a person who's going to engage in a Saturday Night Massacre, uh, and, and other things like that. You know, one more overall question on obstruction that we now have an answer to, and this is the question of why the special counsel didn't try to compel the testimony of Donald Trump on obstruction, and a lot of people have been saying on television and in the papers. That one very smart and clever thing that the president did or his lawyers got him to do was never sit down or even answer written questions on obstruction because he would have gotten himself in a lot of trouble because you see how much lying there is that goes on. And maybe that sort of saved his skin. And people, some people have been critical of the special counsel. One of the few things that I predicted correctly in this whole you know, series of events 
is that I assumed that one of the reasons that the special counsel didn't seek to compel testimony is because of the time delay that would result in. And we see here in the report that the special counsel addresses why, and I think this is a question on a lot of people's minds and a lot of listeners' minds, why it is they didn't try to get the president to speak on this issue. If one of the main issues is what your state of mind is, well, why not ask the president? And they said, special counsel said, quote, we made that decision in view of the substantial delay that such an investigative step would likely produce at a late stage in our investigation, which I think would have taken us, you know, past the next election if the president decided to fight that subpoena. And then they also said, we assess that based on the significant body of evidence we already obtained of the president's actions and his public and private statements, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we could make an assessment. And they say also, finally, that in lots of garden variety obstruction cases, those cases are made based on uh, circumstantial evidence and inferences that you ask the jury to make because often the person will not speak to you. It's difficult to get them to speak to you. And they, of course, always have their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So it's not unusual to make a final assessment about obstruction without talking to the individual you um, suspect of it. But that's kind of interesting, I thought. I thought one of the most interesting parts of the the sentences you just read related to the special counsel's determination that they had sufficient evidence to make a determination of whether or not there was corrupt intent. And, and you know, there's no question in my mind, based on reading this report, there are a number of instances where the special counsel finds that the president was not truthful. And so it seems to me that the president's lawyers did make a good decision as a defense matter, as a defense lawyer matter. They made a, you know, they were probably right that walking the president into an interview could have led to additional lies um, or or untruths. And so they, they wanted to, to avoid that. But it's also equally c- clear that the special counsel did a very thorough investigation and felt that the special counsel was able to make a call based on based on the and the intent of the president. What's also pretty interesting about this, and I it's worth it's worth maybe noting because y- you and I probably expected as former prosecutors, but one of the things that's interesting is the people who are witnesses here, whose testimony the public can now read. People like Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, KT McFarland, the former Deputy National Security Advisor. There's a there's a whole list of people who were interviewed as part of the investigation, and Mueller credits a lot of their a lot of their statements, and a lot of those statements are contrary to the interests of the president. And so people do come. That's one forward. reason. To, that's one reason to credit them, right? Yes. <laughs> Yes. And it, it, people do come forward and cooperate with investigations in a way that that I think is important to note. And, and you really do see that here. Mueller is able to sort of lay out the facts and to um, do the analysis here because of that cooperation. And now a word from our sponsors. How much time do you think attorneys spend managing their legal practices, clients, and cases? As an attorney myself, I know that the answer is a lot. Thankfully, there's a better way with Clio. Clio is the secure, cloud-based legal software that makes managing and growing your firm easier. Clio automates the tedious tasks that take up your valuable time, like generating bills, maintaining endless documents, and keeping cases organized. Clio allows you to focus on the things that actually matter. Clio's easy-to-use interface makes you more productive and helps you get paid faster. And Clio's mobile app lets you access your files from wherever you are. Clio is trusted by over 150,000 legal professionals and approved by 66 bar associations and law societies worldwide. I even spoke at Clio's cloud conference a few years back. So take your law firm to the next level with Clio. Go to clio.com slash Preet 
to start your free trial, no credit card required, and get exclusive savings. That's clio.com slash preet. Clio.com slash preet. You know, at the risk of redundancy, I, I want to go back to this sentence that you pointed out that I read a second ago, and that is because I think a central question here, and I don't mean to belabor it, but I think it's really, really important. A central question here is, but for the fact that Donald Trump is the president of the United States, would it be appropriate to charge him now? And that bears on the question of what his culpability is, how the public should assess his conduct, what his exposure is when he leaves office, but also bears on the question of whether or not it would be appropriate for Congress to consider impeachment. And so all these clues about whether or not the special counsel really did think they had enough to charge on obstruction is incredibly important. And this, and when, where they say that one of the reasons that they decided to forego an interview is because we had sufficient evidence to understand relevant events and to make certain assessments without the president's testimony, that's not a neutral statement. That seems to me a thumb on the scale of, yeah, we knew bad stuff was going on because elsewhere in the document, especially in portions where they're talking about conspiracy, they do say that because of certain actions by certain people and with the holding of documents and encryption and various other reasons, we couldn't make a really good, clear assessment of the conduct and of people's intent. They don't say that here. On the question, on the question of obstruction, which is the one thing they say they, they're not going to decide, the more I think about it and in talking to you and hearing your views on it, the more I think that but for the fact that the president is the president, he would be in serious legal jeopardy on obstruction. Yeah, I agree with that. Do um do, did you did you know and and this is one of the sort of questions I had as I was reading the report for you about Mueller's this conversation about whether you need an underlying crime to commit the crime of obstruction and the report says pretty clearly, you know, quote, the injury to the integrity of the justice system is the same regardless of whether a person committed an underlying wrong. Um but it it does go on to to sort of look at this question of you know, at the time of the initial investigation into Russian interference with the American election, the report does, you know, go out of its way to state that at that moment in time, the president did not believe he had been told by Jim Comey, he was not a subject or a target of the investigation, that it wasn't about him. Um, and, you know, that, that of course, is not a bar to being prosecuted for obstruction of justice. You can obstruct an investigation whether or not you're a target of that investigation. But did you find that language compelling or what was your what was your reaction to it? So I think it's a correct statement of the law that Mueller adopts and that other people have said and you and I agree with that there's no legal requirement that someone be guilty of an underlying crime to prosecute someone for obstructing an investigation into that crime. For among other reasons, it would provide incentive to everyone in the country who's under investigation to, to, to obstruct uh, effectively so that there could be no underlying charge, and therefore you're off the hook on obstruction. So it makes no sense at all. It is not crazy when the special counsel says you can imagine circumstances in which a good faith belief that you hadn't done anything wrong and an investigation was not being done properly, it could in some circumstances bear on the intent of the person. Was the person you know, really intending to obstruct? Um, yeah. you know, I, don't, I don't fully buy it. The, the worst version of this uh, kind of f- foolish version of this that I heard come out of the mouth of Attorney General Barr this morning that a lot of people have commented on was, well, the president, you know, you have to understand the context in which this was happening. president didn't think he'd done anything wrong, and he was really frustrated and really angry, as if frustration and anger can be a defense. You know, most right. people, as, as lots of other folks have been pointing out, 
that's usually the state of mind when you actually engage in prosecutable obstruction of justice. You're frustrated and angry that you might be charged with something. So I, I think it's a complicated issue. Um, I, I do think that, that, it, that there's a circumstance in which it could have some bearing. The way that Bill Barr tried to gloss over it, I think, doesn't wash. Yeah. And it feels to me that it, the president could have engaged in obstruction for a variety of different reasons and could have had a corrupt intent. And it could have been, you know, one reason people obstruct justice or try to, you know, thwart investigations is because they're the subject of an investigation. Another is that people close to them are the subject of an investigation, which was certainly the case here. Michael Flynn was prosecuted. Paul Manafort was prosecuted. There are countless examples of people who were being prosecuted around the president. And then another, which, you know, is clearly articulated in the report is for to avoid embarrassment. You know, the president was concerned about the legitimacy of the election and thought that the investigation undercut it. So there could be a lot of different motives for why someone would engage in this behavior. But the real question is, do they meet those three elements of the crime of obstruction? The, you know, the obstructive conduct, the nexus to a pending proceeding in the grand jury or potential proceeding and corrupt intent. And it is relevant to intent, but I, I really... I really push back against any idea that the fact that there, the president did not commit the underlying crime of conspiracy with Russia to hack the um, to hack the computer emails or engage in the social media distortion of the election. Just because he's not involved in that does not mean to me that he cannot be guilty of obstruction of justice. I agree with that. Um, you know, looking at some of the examples of conduct that could or could not you know, feed uh, a finding of obstruction. You know, one of the biggest things that has happened in the last two years, and in fact, probably the proximate, not probably, it was the proximate cause of Bob Mueller being appointed in the first place. And that is whether the firing of Jim Comey itself, and they spent a lot of pages talking about this, and it's on everyone's mind, was the actual firing of Jim Comey itself, that act itself, was that obstruction. And on that score, maybe you read a little differently from how I did, but uh, I'm curious to know what you think. You know, the, the Mueller team is, is a little bit sympathetic, I thought, in some respects, to the Trump folks' argument that, on the one hand, there's a lot of evidence that he wanted the Russian investigation to go away, and he gave that statement to, to Lester Holt on television. He said these weird things to the Russian officials in the White House. But on the other hand, a little bit in his favor, not because it makes him look good, but on the criminal issue, he wanted over and over again Jim Comey to say publicly that I, Donald Trump, was not personally under investigation. And frustration with his refusal to do that, which he thought was insubordination, to the extent that was the cause of his firing, if that was the exclusive cause of his firing, that does not lend you know, a ton of weight to an obstruction finding. What did you think of that? I think that's right. But what 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 persuaded me otherwise, and, and I think what Mueller does here is he puts out all the evidence, which I really respect and, and think is positive, and there is a really close link in time between when um, Jim Comey, you know, he testifies before the House um, Select Permanent Committee on Intelligence, and he talks about the fact that there is a Russian an investigation into Russia that's happening and into the Trump campaign. And he does not say, as the president has requested, but the president is not a, su a subject or target of the investigation. And so it's clear that the president acts on Comey pretty pretty close in time to that, that he is frustrated by that. But it's equally clear that there are a number of incidents and events that Mueller corroborates or makes findings of credibility on, including um, 
you know, the president uh, meeting with one-on-one with Comey in, in the Oval Office, with Mo- which Mueller finds, look, he cleared the room, which he knew that he ne- wanted to have this as a private conversation, saying, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. I hope you can let this go. Mueller goes on to talk about, to basically explain why he credits Comey. And then he goes on to look at other things that are surrounding this. And he talks about the Lester Holt comments. He talks about the comments to the Russians in um, in the Oval Office. And he really ultimately, I think, it's possible that there are multiple motives for why the president wanted to fire Comey. But the conversation that I found really important in that, in the, this part of the report, is that he talks about saying to to someone, Chris Christie, basically, you know, this I'm, I'm going to fire Comey. This cures the Russia problem. This this puts it to rest. And Christie says to him, no, it doesn't end the investigation, at which point Trump gets Comey in the room and tries to basically say to him, you know, here's what has to happen, right? This has to go away um, as it relates to Flynn. And so there's so much here that while Comey's refusal to say Trump isn't under investigation is a part of it. It's also very clear that Trump was doing anything he could to try to stop the investigation. And what do you think? I mean, one of the things that I I mean, I maybe shouldn't admit that I laughed at this, but I I just really couldn't believe it is how many times the president tries to get Sessions to unrecuse himself, which I didn't even know. I didn't even know that was a word. I don't think it is a thing. Well, what's crazy about that also is if you if you think about it, maybe other people have said this. But I was struck by it when I was reading the report today. The very fact that Donald Trump wanted his AG to recuse himself and wanted him to do it because he said, you're supposed to protect me. Right. The very fact that that was in the mind of the president is enough to have him be recused. <laughs> like that's the exact, the exact you know, central issue regarding uh, you know, f- favoritism and not, not being neutral. All right. So, and what happens now? Did Donald Trump resign in disgrace? Well, uh, does what, Bill Barr become knighted? The uh, only are thing, there impeachment proceedings that begin immediately? What happens? Yeah. The only thing I know for sure is that um, for the next 48 hours, this is going to be all over the TV and in the newspapers, and we're going we're gonna to keep talking about it. And, and to that end, I would really encourage people to read this, the executive summaries at the beginning, and maybe we can post them on the uh, cafe website um, because it's it's worth reading. They're about eight or nine pages each. The volume one executive summary and volume two. It's pretty pretty compelling reading too. It will it will um, you will not fall asleep when you read it. So the first thing I know is that we're going to keep talking about it. The second thing, I think it becomes there is a question of whether Mueller, Mueller testifies if he's subpoenaed. I'm sure he will testify. Um, but I think the more significant question is: Does Congress decide to take any action? Do they? Do they want to and, – and obviously there's still a question of Congress seeing a fuller um, – it, it appeared from Barr's statements and the president's statements that that some members of Congress would see a fuller, less redacted report. Um, and so that's, that's a pending question. But then I think the bigger question is what does Congress do with this? Do they hold hearings? Do they – Try to explore some of these some of these incidents. Do they seek impeachment? Um, do they have a discussion about whether to, to to seek impeachment of the president based on obstruction? And so, what what do you think happens next? I mean, I, I sort of think this turns to become a more political question. Um, the other the other thing we should look for is that it says in the report that that Mueller made fourteen referrals 
of prosecution, potential investigations and prosecutions. And those would have been made to other U.S. attorneys offices and prosecutors offices. And of the 14 that he made, we know we know two of them, essentially Michael Cohen and Greg Craig, both of whom have been charged with crimes. But there are 12 outstanding referrals. And so that's another thing we, sh- we should watch for. Yeah. And on the issue of impeachment, I think that's a roiling debate that will persist because uh, some people think maybe it's not a great idea, even if they think the president has done a lot of bad things. I think just before we started taping, uh, Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader, Democrat, said as follows, uh, based on what we have seen to date, going forward on impeachment is not worthwhile at this point, he reportedly said. And then he reportedly went on to say, very frankly, there's an election in 18 months and the American people will make a judgment. So that's the view of Steny Hoyer who's a high-ranking official on the Democratic side in the House. So I guess there will be a lot of debate, a lot of hand-wringing, uh, and we'll see what happens. And that's also consistent with what um, Speaker Pelosi had said about not looking for impeachment. So we'll have to yeah, I, I think it's, to it's sort of an odd, yeah, It's sort of an odd moment in the wake of people just digesting this document that I think is very bad for the president to say in, in this precise uh, sort of maelstrom to say in the middle of this maelstrom, hey, guys, no no impeachment. I, you know, obviously trying to send a signal to the, to the members and maybe to some of the committee chairmen, and in particular, Jerry Nadler. Obviously, we could keep talking about this for a long, long time, and we do. To listen to the rest of our conversation, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to full episodes of the Insider podcast, bonus material from Stay Tuned, and more. In addition to today's episode, we'll have more to discuss on Monday's episode of Cafe Insider, when Anne and I typically break down the headlines and make sense of what's happening. So head to cafe.com slash insider and become a member. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have already joined, thank you for your support. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Stay Tuned is produced in association with Stitcher. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Clio is the secure cloud-based legal software that makes managing and growing your firm easier. It automates the tedious tasks that take up an attorney's valuable time, from generating bills to maintaining endless documents. Not to mention, its mobile app lets you access your files from anywhere. Take your law firm to the next level with Clio. Go to clio.com preet and start a free trial, no credit card required, and get exclusive savings. That's clio.com preet. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, 
fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.